Well, this Sunday, we get to look, as it's already been mentioned, at a psalm of repentance. Um, we've had lots of different psalms, and this one's unique in its own way. And with fear and trepidation, I uh, open with you to Psalm 51. Also, while we look at Psalm 51, please, uh, if you'd like, please uh, keep your finger in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, as these two passages are inseparable. Hear now the reading of God's word. Psalm 51, to the choir master. A psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the Edward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. And bowls will be offered on your altar. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this beautiful psalm. The psalm that hits us in our innermost heart. Father, we pray that as we open this word, your word, together, that you would use it to convict us of our sin, to see your great mercy. You are the God of abundant mercy. Father, we pray that the thoughts of our hearts and the words of my mouth would be pleasing in your sight. We ask these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. When was the last time 
you were genuinely surprised. Maybe it was a birthday present or a visit from a friend that you hadn't seen in a while. Maybe it was something negative, like a car accident or a trip to the hospital. While surprises carry with them a flood of emotions, they also carry a series of actions in response. We like to watch America's Funniest Home Videos as a family, and sometimes they'll have these sequences of people getting uh, uh, scared, jump scared. Sometimes people wear a scary mask, or sometimes they'll hide in a trash can and jump out. And the reaction is normally always the same. When the unsuspecting person is surprised, they immediately react with flailing limbs, a look of horror on their face, and if they're carrying anything, especially water, it goes flying. But what does this have to do with Psalm 51? Well, if you've ever read the story of David, King David and Bathsheba, you might know what's going on here. But if you don't know the context of the psalm, the story is actually quite surprising. If you put yourself in the place of a common citizen of Israel at the time, you would be shocked to hear what happened. Even more, if you were a part of the army that was fighting the enemies of God, and you returned home to hear what your king had done, you would be astonished. And the surprise, especially when accompanied by strong emotions, provokes a strong response. One of the problems that we face as Christians is that although we are blessed to have the word of God easily accessible, we can become too comfortable with its content. I don't know how many times I've read Psalm 51 in the past month, but I'll tell you that I struggled each and every time to let it sink into my heart and change me. That can be true of any passage of Scripture, but I think we have an especially difficult time with a passage like this that talks so clearly about our sin. Psalm 51 is a genuinely surprising psalm of repentance. It's not what you might expect from someone who's just been revealed to be an adulterer and a murderer. In this psalm, we see the astounding reality of the problem of our sin. And the possibility of world-altering repentance and the amazing, awesome, and merciful God who pursues us. And if we are truly astonished by these things, they will provoke a change, a repentance in our own hearts that mirrors the example that we see in King David. Because God is so merciful and pursues us even into the pit of death, let us be surprised again by his grace and be changed to walk in holiness and devotion to this astonishing God of mercy. I've already mentioned how the backstory to the psalm is quite astonishing. In 2 Samuel 11 and 12, Scripture tells us the story of King David and his great failure. While the army of Israel went out to fight against the enemies of Israel, the enemies of God, King David stayed at home. And while idle at home, he sees beautiful Bathsheba bathing and lusts after her, commands her to come to his house and commits adultery with her. When she finds she is pregnant, 
David continues adding to his sin by sending her husband Uriah to the forefront of the army to be killed by the Ammonites. Uriah and several other servants, these mighty warriors of David, are killed all by the command and scheming of David. How would you feel if you were a part of the army of Israel and you found out what your king had done? Sin can be a difficult subject because it is both something that is fundamental to life and something that is fundamentally wrong. While sin is shocking and abhorrent, it is also secretive and deceptive. Sin is also a heavily weighted word. It's not a comfortable word. It's not one that our culture and world approves of because it means that at the very core of every single person, there is something wrong, something that we cannot fix. The word sin is an offense to human pride. If you're sitting here this morning feeling uncomfortable with the idea of sin, don't write off this psalm just yet. Even though we're talking about our deepest and most vulnerable failures, and it's difficult, it's something that each and every person feels necessary. It's why our culture, in our culture, there's a thing that's called cancel culture. We're flawed to our core, but we also desperately want and need justice. The problem is that if you try to fix what's broken in our hearts without God, you end up with more broken bones than healed wounds. People are quick to point out the failures of others, but we don't really have a way to reconcile and heal apart from Jesus. So if we're uncomfortable with the sin that we see in David mirrored in our own hearts, we won't be able to fix it by hiding our sin. The only way to clean a wound is to disinfect it. If we're going to really see what David's psalm of repentance means for us, we have to really see our need and see the astonishing devastation of his and our sin. Our transgressions of God's law are numerous, and if we are not repenting of our sin, we are likely holding on to it in one way or another. Instead of seeing our sin for the egregious act of treason against God, we blind ourselves, tricking ourselves into the thinking that our sin isn't really all that bad. I found it helpful to group the ways we hold onto our sin into four different categories. So let's look at those. The first way that we blind ourselves is when we deny or are ignorant of our sin. We act as if we have not sinned. All through 2 Samuel 11, where it's describing David's falling further and further into sin, there is a hint of guilt or repentance in the words and actions of David. It wasn't until God confronted David through the prophet Nathan that David finally admitted that what he had done was wrong. Isn't that the case for much of our sin? I know it's my first instinct when I know that I've done something wrong to hide it away. As many of you know, we have ring cameras around the outside of the building. And uh, it's helpful to keep an eye on the snow levels or um, to see, you know, keep an eye on the property. Uh, sometimes we see kids after school going over to the, to the swings and swinging. 
Uh, sometimes people will sit at the end of the parking lot and eat their lunch. But one time, there was a group of teenagers that came in the middle of the night and parked over near the playground, uh, probably to hang out and do some mischief. One of the teens was walking through the playground area and looked up at the camera and paused and said, is that a camera? <laughs> this church has cameras? What does that question show about his heart? How do you think knowing that the church had cameras changed the group's behavior? Why do you think the group was hanging out at night, away from the view of the road? While the group ended up smashing a couple bottles in the parking lot, they really didn't do anything to the church. And they haven't been back either. What's astonishing about the way we blind ourselves? Have you ever heard about the phrase, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results? We know that God sees all our actions and thoughts. We know that God cannot be tricked, yet we keep hiding our sin. We keep lying to ourselves and to him over and over again because we know the true nature of our sin is infinite transgression against God. It's a cosmic rebellion. Even if we could travel to the ends of the universe, God would still know every sin. The counter to this is what David confesses in verse 3, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. It's viewing our sin like God does, realizing we cannot hide any part of it away. The second way we blind ourselves is by minimizing our sin. We make God small and we make ourselves big. When Bathsheba told David that she was pregnant, what did he do? Well, he immediately realized that his sin was going to be revealed and he went and cried out to God for mercy, right? No. He thought to himself, I can fix this. How arrogant. How small did David count the holiness of God that he could, thought he could fix his adultery and failure as the king of Israel by covering it up? You know what David's fix was, right? Multiple counts of murder. It's ridiculous. Then again, how small do we count the holiness of God when we pause scrolling on the phone to look a little longer at an indecent ad? Spend money on things that we don't need. Spend money that we don't have to indulge ourselves. Lash out against someone who did something that we didn't like. Or waste time and resources just because it's easy. And it feels good. Do we even think twice? If it stings, like it stings my own heart, you're feeling the absurdity and the astounding problem of your sin. That's why David says in verse 4 and 5, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. David's not saying that his sin hasn't affected anyone else. People have died because of his sin. God 
is righteous, and we are not. He's recognizing the vast and impossible gap between who we are and in our sin and who God is. That we are from infancy burdened with a sinful nature that constantly defies and belittles God. Two more ways that we blind ourselves to sin, and then we'll get to the really good part, I promise. And the good part is really good. The third way we blind ourselves to sin is by changing it, making it virtuous. What I mean is what Paul confronts in Romans 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? The blindness here is a twisting of the truth, of excusing what is objectively bad for the sake of something good. We play at God's trying to create peace out of our own foolishness and pride. We silence the guilt in our hearts with the excuse that it will all work out in the end. This is what King David did in the aftermath of, the wicked, of his wicked rampage. You see, David's men feared his wrath because they had foolishly lost several men. Joab, the commander, told his messenger to go and tell David all the bad news. The battle went horribly. But by finish, by saying that Uriah was dead. Although David should have been angry at himself for the unrighteous loss of life, he twists the truth. He appeases his own conscience. He tells the messenger, thus you shall say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. Do you hear what he's done? He's blamed his premeditated murder on fate, or really, on the will of God. The sword devours now one and now another. What is astonishing here is that when our consciences are pricked, yet we do not want to repent from our sin, we somehow try to blame our actions on God. As if God working all things together for good means that our sin is inconsequential. But at what cost do we defame the goodness and holiness of God? Hebrews warns, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted of the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God through their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. The answer to this blindness in, is in verse 6 in Psalm 51. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Truth always declares God as just, and we as sinners. Wisdom teaches us that God is good and that we can only be good if God makes us so by washing and making us new. As David says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. This picture of taking the hyssop, dipping it in the blood, 
the sacrificed lamb, putting it on the doorpost, covered with blood of another, of the lamb. The fourth way that we hide our sin, that we blind ourselves, is the most devastating, the one that we see most in our world. And that's either to deny our sin or to celebrate it. Oh, that God would protect us from this blindness. If we deny the reality of sin or if we celebrate the practice of it, the outcome is the same. Sin becomes our God. Instead of repenting of our sin, we are running full into the pit of death. Oh, how great the grace of God that prevents us so often from falling into this blindness. For God has washed us and made us clean, as David shows in verse 7. And God gives us a new heart, a clean heart, and a renewed spirit in verse 10. But if you are running away from God and have rejected him, if you have seen his offer of salvation and have decided to do it on your own, your surprise is yet to come. You will still be astonished by God's justice and goodness, but instead of joy, you will feel the eternal dread of God's full displeasure. The only way to avoid his wrath is to do as David does, repent. Cry out to God to save you from all your sin. We all here are equals at the foot of the cross. All need God's mercy. So David cries out an astonishing repentance. And it's an amazing song of repentance, isn't it? Already we've seen some of the complexity of the psalm, how deep it is. But there are so many verses left. David cries out to God, have mercy on me, blot out my transgressions, wash me, cleanse me, purge me, renew and restore In these 19 verses in the English translation, we have 20 pleas to God. If I was a cynic, I would cry foul, well, what audacity. How does David think he can come to God and demand so much after all he's done? But David isn't coming to God on his own terms. He's not coming to demand of God. He's coming to God with full knowledge of what he's done and how little he deserves the mercy of God. He's not demanding God's mercy. He's begging for it as one who has nothing. You know, David's repentance isn't astonishing because of how beautiful a psalm it makes. It's not astonishing because he's confessing to the whole of Israel all his sin. It's not astonishing because of all the pleas for God's mercy. It's astonishing because it shows something so common and simple, the kind of repentance that all of us need. This repentance is amazing. We come to God with nothing. All that we have is broken and worthless. David even says that God isn't pleased with the sacrifices that Israel daily offers up. Well, we find hope in God alone. We have nothing apart from God. However, this doesn't mean that repentance is easy. Repentance costs our pride and our sin. It requires that we give up what we've so long held on to. 
but what appears to be a feast of self-indulgence is merely a facade of ash. The life this world offers can never satisfy our needy souls. But there is a real life that God has prepared for us, full of forgiveness, peace, and hope. It's the kind of life that fills our hearts and causes us to sing aloud of the greatness of God. It's the kind of life that causes us to declare to others and lead others into the ways of God. Through our repentance, God causes others to return. As David says, sinners will return to you. Such is the repentance God requires. And thus, we must turn again and again. We do not repent of our sin once and are done with it. We do not uh, have immediate regeneration of our hearts to perfection, but must be continually repentant of our sin. As Calvin wrote in his commentary on Psalm 51, our faith is weak. And we cannot at once apprehend the full extent of the divine mercy. God's pardon is full and complete. But our faith cannot take in his overflowing goodness. And it is necessary that, we should, that it should distill to us drop by drop. It is owing to this infirmity of our faith that we are often found repeating and repeating again the same petition. Not with the view of gradually softening the heart of God to compassion but because we advance by slow and difficult steps to the requisite fullness of assurance. As our apprehension of God's mercy grows, the allure of sin diminishes. As we behold our great God again and again, he removes the blindness of our eyes. Do not be afraid then to repent again and again. Not be afraid that you have worn out your repentance. God's pardon is full and complete already. He is the steadfast God of mercy, the astounding God of mercy. While David's repentance is important, David actually isn't the main character here in Psalm 51. After all, David wouldn't have written the psalm if it wasn't for Nathan coming to him. And Nathan wouldn't have come to him if he wasn't sent by such a great God. It was God who pursued David. It was God who tore down the lies and deadly schemes so that David would repent. It was God who showed himself to be faithful to his covenant so that David could have confidence. After all, what good is David's cry to God unless... God is both powerful and merciful to hear, forgive, and draw him back. What good is David's cry to God, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me, except that God cast away his own son, Jesus, forsook him on the cross so that he might bear the penalty of our sin. We see this in Matthew 27. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. 
And behold, the curtain of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Jesus died. Jesus took the death penalty, and then he rose again from the dead to eternal, unending, glorious life. David was secure in the Christ, just as we are secure in him. One of the most beautiful parts of this story is when King David is taken aback and repents of his sin, and immediately God assures him. In 2 Samuel 12, it says, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Some commentators think there's a time gap in between these two phrases. David repents and Nathan assures him. While that may be the case, There's something simple and profound about how it's written. David repents, and God assures him that he will live. David still received the consequences of his sin. The rest of his rule was marked by family strife and Israel pulling away from his leadership. He was not the perfect king that God's people needed. And again, only God is the perfect king. And only Jesus is the perfect man and God that can bring all the covenant promises to pass. Are you astounded by the Savior? Are you surprised by him? Do you marvel at his goodness and mercy, which he has brought about a cosmic revolution? He's making all things new, and he's already working in our hearts to make them new. If you do not know him, come and be amazed by this great God, by this great Savior. And if you do him, if you do know him, come and be astonished again. When Isaiah saw God high and lifted up with the glory filling the throne room, he didn't wait until the vision was done to fall on his face in worship. Come, repent of your sin and all the ways you have blinded yourself to your sin. And if you come, I guarantee you that you will never stop finding new ways that this God will surprise and amaze you. He is the wonderful, glorious the astounding God of mercy. Let's pray. O astounding God of mercy, we ask that you would pour out your mercy on us. Show us our sin, but more than that, Father, show us our great and wonderful Savior. Cast not your face from us. Return your joy to us. 
because we are bound together with Christ, who is not dead, but has been raised up to glorious eternal life. Knit us together, even now with him. Bind us in Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.